Well, this Sunday marks the first Sunday in Lent, a journey that is 40 days that began this last week on Ash Wednesday and will take us through Holy Week to the cross and to the empty tomb. And anytime as Christians we see a time period with a number 40 in front of it, we need to know that that has very real significance. Because biblically, the number 40, when it comes to time periods, is a time of change. It's a time of preparation. It's a time where God is preparing people for something new. It's not always a time that's easy. It's a time sometimes when we hear words like refining of God's people, of pruning of God's people. Because sometimes for God to prepare us for the thing that's something new, we have to be willing and able to see and let go of something old. We have to be able to repent and to move in new directions. We see this number 40 and the importance of it throughout the scriptures. We see it, for example, in the book of Genesis, where Noah and his family are in an ark with uh, all of the animals of, of creation for 40 days and nights it rains. And that creation means that, uh, that rain means that when they emerge from the ark, the world is different from the one they went into. It's, a, it's an in-between time. It's a time where the world is being remade and that 40 days is symbolic that the world they exit into is different from the one they left behind. Preparing them for something new. We see this in the book of Exodus, where when the Hebrew slaves leave slavery in Egypt, before they can enter into the promised land, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And it's not just that God's messing with them. It's that God is reshaping them and reforming them from people who fought as a people who were in slavery to people who could move into the promised land, trusting in and operating as the liberated people of God. God is moving in their lives, so they're different at the end of that 40 days than they were, uh, 40 years than they were at the beginning. We see this in the New Testament, the importance of it with Jesus, where he, uh, after his baptism at the hands of John the Baptist, goes into the wilderness, and for 40 days he is there and doesn't eat or drink, and three times he is tempted by the devil in those 40 days. But when he emerges from the wilderness after 40 days, he's different than how he went in. That 40 days... Uh, uh, molds him in ways that when he emerges, that's when his teaching, preaching, healing ministry begins that we know so well. His ministry and his life is different at the end of those 40 days. He emerges from the wilderness different than the way he went in. And so when you and I move through a period that has the number 40 with it, we need to understand God is going to be working in our lives, preparing us for something new. But maybe to step into the new, we have to be willing to reflect on it and move away from it and repent of the old. I wonder what God might do in your life, in my life, as we journey this Lenten season together. Now, this isn't a journey that we just all take individually. We're going to do it as a church. As you can see here, uh, we are entering into a teaching series that is going to guide us as a community entitled Portraits of Repentance. And before we read our scripture passage today, I want to sort of give you a 30,000 foot overview of how this series is going to work, okay? Because it's important we see it. There are a few things that I want you to know. The first thing is this. We're going to be looking in the Gospels absolutely completely at the events of Holy Week in this. And we're going to do this to uh, look at the time period between Palm Sunday and Easter only to get our ratios right as a church. And here's what I mean by this. The gospel writers spend a huge amount of time, chapter upon chapter upon chapter, on the events of Holy Week. 
on the events of Jesus coming in for the Passover, on the events of him cleansing the temple, on the events of his teaching and his healing, on the events of Passover and his betrayal by Judas, on the events of his trial and crucifixion, and the events of the resurrection. We encapsulate it all in seven days out of 365. I think the gospel writers would look at the modern church and be like, you guys should probably spend a whole lot more time on this than you do. So we're going to spend all of Lent looking at events in these few days to get our ratios a little bit more like what the Gospels look like, okay? Number two, we're going to every week focus on a specific individual as an invitation for repentance. Now, what does that mean? What we're going to be doing each week, starting today, is we're going to look at one person in the Holy Week story, and we're going to learn about them, not just from a historical perspective, but I hope what we do in this is see how them, how they and their sin lives in us and might give us uh, an insight into how we can repent ourselves today. We can see ourselves through the lens of them, okay? So we're going to look at people that we maybe have heard of in the Holy Week story, Pontius Pilate. What's going on with him? And, 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 and how do we see that in us? Peter, as he denies Jesus three times. Judas Iscariot. What's going on there? The high priest Caiaphas. Like, what, what, who is he? And what's going on in that? And I think each of these people can give us a lens to ourselves and to our world today to invite us to see what we maybe need to let go of or change. Okay? Last, thirdly. Wednesday Nights with Alan, which I said to the service earlier than this, sounds like a sitcom that we're starting. Um, and maybe we'll start that someday. Uh, but what that means this year is that we're going to have a different Lenten rhythm. Is it Alan Hilton, our, uh, who preached last week, our director of the Institute of Missional Formation, is going to be teaching every Wednesday night in Lent on the scripture passage that is preached on on Sunday. And so, you know, Alan, in his background and his many gifts, uh, among other things, has a PhD in New Testament from Yale, taught on the faculty of Yale uh, Divinity School for a number of years. And so to have that is going to be an awesome thing for us as a church to get to enter into a rhythm of how do we study Scripture? Now, we have amazing Bible studies at Covenant, and we have amazing teachers on staff. We have amazing lay teachers. This is not to uh, supersede any of what we're doing already. We're grateful for that. But this is to bring a unique perspective to our community uh, that if you have been in a Bible study for decades, this is going to be a way that Alan's going to be talking about not just the passage, but how do you study Scripture? What does he think about when he opens it? What questions do you ask? And if you have never been to a Bible study before or have always felt like that was intimidating, come on Wednesday nights. It's going to be a way that you can begin immersing yourselves in some of these stories we're talking about on Wednesday, on Sunday. So this coming Wednesday night, like three days from now, Alan is going to be teaching. We'll have dinner beforehand. You can come. You can hang out with people, meet some people, have dinner, a good food with friends. And at 6.30, Alan's going to open the passage and teach on it and so that we can interact with it. It's going to be a different kind of rhythm for us of this Sunday-Wednesday rhythm of sitting in the Word. But I think it's going to be something that's going to be powerful for us to get to do together and journey together. And so I hope Wednesdays are on your radar screen as we go forward through these 40 days. Because I believe if we throw ourselves into this, friends, you, me, this community, we're going to be different at the end of this journey than where we are today. So let's begin. The first person we're going to look at uh, today and in the week to come in our Portraits of Repentance is the High Priest Caiaphas. The high priest of the temple system. 
And we're going to be starting just after Jesus has entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday for um, the Passover. And we're reading from Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the courtyard of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray no matter who we are, how we gather today, what hopes, what doubts, what beliefs, what questions, what dreams, that we would all encounter you and your gospel, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're like 10 minutes in, and I have just like fire-hosed you with a lot of information, okay? So as a reminder, if you've forgotten already from two minutes ago, what we're doing today is we're going to take a look at Caiaphas for understanding who he is and what's going on, not just from history's sake, but what does he maybe have to say to us today about ourselves, okay? And I think there's a couple of different ways you can look at Caiaphas. And I think the first way, and it's not that it's wrong, but this is probably our default in a church of how we look at the Pharisees and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was, you know, the chief priest. He's probably the most important person in Israel at the time, probably the most powerful person as running the temple system, which, con- which uh, like really uh, controlled government, which controlled politics, which controlled economics, which controlled religion. There's all this power that flowed through the temple. And, uh, and Caiaphas is the most important person there. And often the, the way that we look at Caiaphas and we look at um, uh, the Pharisees is they're just the bad guys, right? And if you've ever seen like The Passion of the Christ or kind of watched a movie, Caiaphas is never a nice person, right? Like Caiaphas appears on the screen, he looks mean, he orchestrates the killing of Jesus. He's like, the, he's like kind of the Darth Vader figure, right? Like that Star Wars music, the dun, dun, dun. Like that, if Caiaphas emerges, that's, he'd get the Darth Vader music. And so we sort of hear him and like, oh, he's bad. He orchestrates the killing of Jesus. And he does. And the way we can often think of that is like, because the Pharisees are jealous of Jesus, because the Pharisees are like the elites, and and they've gone to the right schools, and they know the secret handshake, and they're kind of in the right club, and they know the things to say, and they're, you know, kind of, and Jesus, they're jealous of him because he comes from outside. He comes from Galilee. He comes from this rural region. He didn't go to the right schools. He doesn't know the right things to say. He's not connected with the right people. He doesn't dress the right way. He, He has these different teachings, and yet Jesus, as the movement develops, the Pharisees get jealous, and that's their right? And so we can make the mistake of going, Caiaphas is just this bitter, jealous, protective, insecure guy, and he kills anyone who threatens his power. And I think there may be some of that going on, but I'm not certain that really gives us a view of Caiaphas. It allows us to then sit there and go, okay, well, he's, he's bad. He's just over there and bad in the story. Where would Jesus, the one he kills? I'm not certain that's the full view of Caiaphas. See, we know about Caiaphas, and it's interesting, not just through the New Testament, but we know about Caiaphas also through historians. And one of the most important historians who wrote about Israel and that region of the world in the first century under Roman rule is a historian named Josephus. 
And Josephus actually mentions numerous of the people uh, that we read about in the New Testament. He talks, he talks about the emergence of Christianity. He talks about uh, Pontius Pilate. He talks about uh, Caiaphas. He talks about him from a historical perspective. And Josephus writes about Caiaphas and the other high priests. And he says, man, the, the, he didn't say man. Let's just be clear. <laughs> At no point did I think Josephus write, man. Um, we're paraphrasing here. Uh, but what, what Josephus says is that Caiaphas and the other high priests at the time had a really weird tightrope to walk. And the tightrope they had to walk was they didn't just have to rise to the top of the Jewish power structure. But Josephus writes they also had to curry the favor and to stay in the good graces of the Romans at the same time. And that made life really difficult for the high priests, including Caiaphas. Because here's how Rome conquered. And this is historical. This isn't just like my interpretation. This is how Rome would conquer the world. They went out and they would conquer different regions. And then they would basically say to you when you were conquered, it's like, hey, it's all going to be good. Again, my paraphrase here. <laughs> we're going to basically let your life continue on the way you did before. You don't need to be all that worked up about this. You can like, keep your religion, you can keep your customs, you can keep the ways you did things, you can keep your, your jobs, you can kind of do all this stuff. But here's what's going to just change. A few things are going to change. One of the things that's going to change is the emperor has to be someone that has supreme power above you and your allegiance above anything else. You've got to, and you've got to acknowledge that. Number two, um, you're going to be taxed and you have no ability to say what the taxes are because we need to keep growing our armies and feeding them and, and arming them. And so you're going to have to pay a lot of taxes and you're just going to do it. And number three, you're not going to have riots or civil unrest because we don't have time for that. And so what they would do is say, like, that's how it's going to work. And as long as you keep your end of the deal, all's going to be well. But what Caiaphas, what the other folks knew who Rome conquered is this. If they got out of line with any of that, they just killed them. It's hard for us to understand the terror that exists in this world. Rome would just come in, it's like, they didn't come in, it's like, let us know kind of what's going on here so we can understand and, and have a sense. They just would come in and annihilate cities and everyone in them. So there was always this threat of if we get out of line, the Romans, they, they just, they absolutely rule with power and threat and terror. And so Caiaphas is always having to try to be in this position going, how do we keep annihilation from happening? Does that make sense? Josephus says that's a really hard position for someone in leadership to be. And the high priest was in that position. We know about this position from the Bible. We're going to bring up a scripture passage here where we first see Caiaphas, not in Matthew, which we just read, but in John. And this takes place at a really interesting time where Jesus is just about to enter into Jerusalem for the Passover, where he's going to die. And his, uh, really his last miracle in John as he's going in is he does this thing that's like taking his ministry to a different level is that he raises Lazarus from the dead. And people start really talking now that he's not just a good teacher, but that he may be the Messiah, the Savior, and we're going into Jerusalem for the Passover and, and what's going to happen. We're, he's going to deliver us from Rome because at the Passover we got delivered from Egypt in slavery. Now we're, the Messiah's back. And right after Lazarus is raised from the dead, Look at what happens. This is where we are introduced to Caiaphas. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. 
You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. Here's why I think this is important. We have leaders who make decisions like that all the time and we erect statues to them as great leaders. Better for one man to suffer than for the cause to be lost. So any of you guys here who are like complete history dorks and you don't have to raise your hand, I acknowledge myself as that. Um, uh, my wife makes fun of me about that and it's totally warranted and justified. But there is a, a person in this community I didn't get permission to ask uh, this of them, but they sent me a podcast that is like changing uh, so much about just a lot of great things in my life. Uh, it's by a guy named Dan Carlin, and, um, and it's called Hardcore History. And again, my wife teases me about this. I'm in the midst of a 20-hour, five-part podcast on the rise of the Japanese Empire in the beginning of the 20th century that led to the events of World War II and then the battle in the Pacific. I just finished a like 30-minute thing on the Battle of Midway. Guys, I thought I knew about that before. Blowing my mind. It is so good. It's one of the highest rated podcasts out there. And, and, and I absolutely love it. But one of the things is I've had the scripture pass in my head and I've been listening to this kind of history is we, in World War II, there were plenty of decisions that sound a lot like that. There were times where Franklin Roosevelt, as our president, there were times where Winston Churchill, uh, there were times as the prime minister of Britain, there were times where General Douglas MacArthur in the Pacific, especially in the early days, were basically having their troops fight battles that they knew they couldn't win. But basically what they were saying is, we need time to build up our, our, our armies and our armament, and so we can't just let you surrender or, or, or we can't evacuate you because it's also going to look bad for the cause. We're fighting for freedom here, and so you might have to fight to the last person. That sounds a lot like Caiaphas. And he is in an amazingly complicated position because of the power of Rome and because how the people are starting to respond to Jesus. And so you might be sitting there right now going, are you saying Caiaphas is a good guy? No. He's our first portrait of repentance. Here's what I don't, I don't want you to see him as other. Oh, Caiaphas is bad. We're with Jesus. I don't know how different our world would be today under the same circumstances. Or how different you and I would be if we were in Caiaphas' position. I hope we can at least empathize with him. But we are using him today not just to empathize with, but ultimately to say, and we'll end with this, of um, how he can give us an insight to repentance, of where is sin alive and what we see in Caiaphas, and how might that teach us today. And I want to warn you now, we're going to get into something that's going to make, that can be somewhat uncomfortable. But I think what I want us to reflect on and invite you to think about this week is that Caiaphas, of all the different things that happen here, what I want to invite you to think about that is some of the sin in his life is that what this scripture passage makes very clear is that what he does is in secret. It's by, I love Matthew's term here. If you look at the scripture passage in your, in your bulletin, he does it by stealth. And that is something that we should reflect on a bit. Where are the shadows more a part of where we hang out than the light? 
This idea of stealth is how actually Holy Week plays out. Many scholars think about it. If you think about Jesus' arrest, that, that the Caiaphas' plan of doing this in secret is how it works out because he's worried about the crowds rioting. So here's how Passover, according to a number of scholars, would have worked at the time of the year Jesus was there when he died. He would have gone in, there's fanfare, he's teaching in the temple, he cleanses it, he preaches and heals on the Passover, and then everybody, including Jesus' disciples, goes to their home. And it's at their homes that they gather with their family. People would have come in from the countryside, the population of Jerusalem swells, you would have had grandparents there, you would have had cousins there, you would have had family traditions that would have revolved about everyone in their own house for the Passover meal. And it's then when everybody is doing their own private, holy thing in their homes, following traditions, it's then that they go and arrest Jesus. Jesus actually says this in one of the Gospels when he's arrested. He says, why are you doing this here at night? I've been teaching in the temple and open. And he knows why they're doing it. He knows that they're doing it at night. And that that night they arrest him, they beat him, they try him before uh, the, the Sanhedrin and then Pilate. And the next morning they whip him and they have him nailed to a cross. What most people would have experienced is his teaching, this amazing thing happening. They go home to celebrate the Passover. They wake up the next day and a neighbor comes running to them saying, he is dying on a cross. And they wouldn't have known it. This whole plan takes place at night in secret. And this, friends, is a continuation of something that has been around since the beginning of time. Where when we see Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 eating of the fruit that they're not supposed to, what's the first thing that happens because of sin is that we start hiding. The first thing Adam and Eve do is that they clothe themselves so they don't see one another as they truly are. And then they go and they hide from God when God comes into the garden. Hiding and operating in secret and having amazing ways of self-justifying it is as old as time itself. Caiaphas has a system where he justifies it here, and you and I may not be that differently here today. How are you operating in the shadows in your life? Because what I want you to hear is that systems and people who operate more and more in secret are not systems and people who flourish. I've never known anybody that would look at their life and be like, man, I am fully alive. You want to know why? Because I don't tell people anything that's fully true. I just, everything's calculated. Come be like me. That's why it's important that we don't have, see, Caiaphas, even the system, they meet here in Matthew in the courtyard of his house. They don't meet in the open. It's one of the important parts in a system uh, like Covenant that we have a system that is open, that is transparent. And you might be sitting there going, well, we don't do a lot of congregational votes. No, we don't. But we have a system where we have elders who are put into position that you all choose. And those are people that you know who they are. You know when they meet. And that you can go and ask. It's important that there's transparency in that so that there is accountability and questions and the ability to ask decisions. It's important that loops are open, not closed, for our health. It's important also that we understand that people thrive this way. Now, I want to be clear. Asking you what might be hidden in your heart, might be hidden in your browser history, 
might be hidden in your life and in your decisions might be a very uncomfortable thing to think about. And I want to be clear, transparency doesn't mean you have to tell everyone everything. That is not being transparent. No one is asking you to do that. No one is asking you next week. Next week, we're going to have a line up here to the microphone of the pulpit, and everybody's going to say, oh, here's where I am right now. I thought I had sinned two weeks ago, but woo, this last week, you'll not believe what I did. Um, no one's going to ask you to do that. That's not transparency. That's narcissism, right? Like, I'm just going to talk about me for a really long time. No, but does anybody know? That's why we emphasize the importance of small groups and Bible studies and where you get together where hopefully you can be real, I, where people have access to you. I've had people who have asked me before, it's like, well, how do, you know, what's the best way to start a small group? And do we have to read a certain book or do we follow the sermon discussion guys that are published online? Or, you know, do we start in this certain curriculum in this way? And that stuff's important, but it's not the most important thing. You know what the most important thing of a small group is? You know what the most important part of a Bible study group really working when you do it? It's do you choose to hide or not? Do you choose when you're together, when people say, how can we pray for you, to tell the truth, or do you hide? And we usually hide, and we have amazing ability to justify why we do it. We can convince ourselves of just about everything, as long as nobody else is a part of that loop. Where are we operating in the shadows, like Caiaphas, like Adam and Eve? And what might it mean to take a step towards the light? Because here's the thing, when you see people who do that, it's liberating. When you see people who step more into living openly, there is a power in that for them, in them, and in their connections with others that is liberating. And I got to experience that eight days ago here at this church at a, a, a gathering that to me is, uh, was an unbelievably beautiful and special time. It was on a Saturday night, and we got to celebrate here uh, 20 years of this church being the gathering point for Allendale's AA meetings and of the hundreds, maybe thousands of lives that have been changed and transformed through our church being one of the largest gathering places in all of Austin, most days of the week, most days two times a day. And as I shared with the folks that night, that's not just like an academic thing for me. I have people, probably like many of you, whose lives have literally been changed and healed from addiction and brokenness in my family and in my friendships through ministries like AA, Gamblers Anonymous, people who have struggled with addiction to pornography, people who have struggled with addiction to narcotics and drugs. And when I got to attend on Saturday night, I was reminded that so much of the power of that, and I'm not reducing the 12 steps to like any one thing, but so much of the power that lies at the heart of what this faith-based thing is, is this idea that it invites you to come out of the shadows for change to happen. Because addictions work and grow because they remain in the shadows and we convince ourselves in ways that nobody needs to know. It's not that big of a deal. It's not affecting me all that much. It's not changing that much about me. And then it grows and grows in the secrets and the ways that we hide them until it can start to overtake us or overtake those whom we love. And the power of when people go together and actually begin by saying, here's the thing that I have felt to keep quiet and I am leading with this. Not out of shame, not out of obligation, but out of the idea that as I bring things from the shadows into the light, God can get involved and transform it and change it and connect me with others and we can be a part of change together. A small group or Bible study should look a lot more like an AA meeting than it should be a book club. We're like, hmm, what do you think about the quote on page 52? <laughs> the question is, are we willing 
to break this cycle that starts in the garden, that's continued in Caiaphas in our own lives by seeking to walk in the light. What would that mean for you this week? What would it mean for you in your life? Maybe the scariest thing to imagine. To come out from the shadows. What would it mean? Maybe what you need to do is just hold it out before God and go, God, I just need to acknowledge this with somebody and you're the only safe place. I'm going to take this as a first step. Help me to know what to do. But I need to name this. Again, it's not, transparency is not doing everything in front of everybody, but it is having people that have access. Maybe it's by sharing something with somebody. Trusting that they can meet you in love and in grace rather than in shame and in judgment. Caiaphas is not just a bad guy. Caiaphas lives in you and in me and in us and in our systems. But there's a chance in this time of preparation to step towards something new. To operate in a different kind of way. And if we can do that, then we will have what is promised to the people of faith, life. And life abundant. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would lead and guide us as what it means to be a people who are building our lives on grace. Help us to emerge from the shadows and to seek the courage and the faith to celebrate the beauty of walking in the light. We pray for your change to flow through us and our world this day and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.